Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name is Ryan. My name's Brent. In this episode, we're heading to the New York subway with SST 203, the Roger Manning self-titled album. It's our first album from Roger. It's first anything from Roger. Very interested, very cool to get into it. I'm looking forward to talking about it with you. I had not heard this record before this week. First yeah. time. Same. And same with me and Brian Ritchie the week before. So I kind of feel like we're entering a new phase of the show almost. Like we're definitely going to have some reissues and familiar faves, but a lot of first listens, which is going to be very cool to get into for, you know, the second half of the series here. So yep. really, really looking forward to getting into this Roger record. I was really surprised by it. We've also got a special guest. Yeah, we've got Roger Manning on the show. Yeah, Roger brings a really great personal story to a lot of the songs that we go through and some great history about the New York anti-folk scene. I'm not sure we've gotten into anti-folk before, so no, very cool. First, Brent, why don't you hit me with some spiels? Uh, you first this week. Oh, my gosh. Okay, so uh, this week, it's just a big old list of new stuff that I saw that's coming out that I'm looking forward to checking out, and it's okay. long. Hit me, man. You got your pen? I do. Okay. There's a new Fontaine's DC record coming out. Skinty FIA out in April. Follow up to their 2020 A Hero's Death, which was on your 2020 top 10, if I'm not mistaken. Sounds right. Probably looking forward to that one, same as me. A new release by this band uh, I've dug for a long time. These Arms Are Snakes. This is a Jade Tree math rock hardcore band. I'm a fan of their older albums, of course. They broke up in 2010, uh, but they are releasing a double LP of rarities called Duct Tape and Shivering Crows out on Suicide Squeeze Records. Check that one out. Yeah, I booked that band one time. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, they were good live. I never saw them live. There is a new Urge Overkill out that Mm -hmm. arrived in the mail for me called We. Yeah, I checked it out. It's it's good. good. Yeah, it is good. Yeah. yeah, it's the first album in a decade, and when I was listening to it, it was just so apparent that no one does Urge Overkill like Urge Overkill. It's it's a good record. Lots of great hooks. Uh, they are in top form. I love this record. Has it really been a decade? Over 10 years, yeah. Because their last one, I doesn't feel like it was a decade ago, but I remember liking that one, too. Yeah, I like this one better. Yeah. Um, all right, Trust Records. Continuing on with their re-release schedule, The Circle Jerks' Wild in the Streets is now out. Uh, obviously extensive, awesome liner notes, just like the Group Sex LP. This one has three bonus tracks on it. Check out that. Pretty underrated record, hey? Yeah, I mean, I got Wild in the Streets on one of those Group Sex Wild in the Streets combo CDs. That's, that's how I first got both of those records. And I will admit that... I kind of trailed off as I got into the Wild in the Streets tracks on that disc. Like the group sex tracks were the ones that grabbed me. They're the ones that I'm the most familiar with, the ones that I like the most. Yeah. As I got older, I gained a lot more appreciation for the Wild in the Streets records. But I think a lot of people had a similar reaction maybe in that you know, group sex was such a grabber. It was so urgent. It was such like the most perfect 22 minutes or whatever, you know, and then wild in the streets almost seemed like mid tempo, which was weird. Yeah. I had the same experience. I have, that's how I heard it too on the, on that double 
double album comp or whatever you want to call it. And uh, after group sex, it's just, you can't top that. Yeah, I know. But but on its own, and in this re-release package, definitely worth checking out. On the tree, Brent, Bob Mould has got a new EP out. Out on Merge, it looks to be digital so far. The, the EP is called Ocean. It's a three-track digital EP, solo live EP, acoustic songs from the Blue Hearts LP and also the Husker Du classic Divide and Conquer. Mm-hmm. Also, you know I follow that label Joyful Noise Records. They've got a new cassette series called the Grey Series. I think they had it last year. Uh, I didn't subscribe. This year it's, a, it's more tempting for me. It's 10 cassette subscription series limited though to 175 it comes in a custom laser etched wooden box with contributions from the melvins dale crover dumb numbers and a bunch of other joyful noise alum interesting to check that one out moving targets who you know i'm a fan of lifelong fan of here uh, they have a new single-sided white vinyl 12 inch where they cover youth of america by the wipers and dead wrong by bullet la volta this is out on these are phenomenal records limited to 150 that's cool um i have checked both of those tracks out they're live renditions of these cover songs it's awesome love it also out on the label what's your rupture in march there's a new Mets split seven inch with adult life. I don't know if you know that band. I don't know this one. A D U L K T adult life. No. Um, and speaking of Mets, Mets is Alex Edkins has a solo project coming out on sub pop called weird nightmare. Hmm. Be checking out both of those quick, some bookage. I got to tell you about this one out on rocket 88 books. This is the same publisher that put out that excellent Dinosaur Jr. book, the Devo book. Uh, They also put out a Clash book, the Too Fast to Live book. They've announced a book called Print the Myth, Joe Strummer Portraits, 1981 to 2001. It is photos by New York photographer and creative director Josh Schuess. He's opened up his private archive filled with hundreds of never-before-seen images of Joe at work and play, as well as sketches, handwritten notes, collages. If you're a Joe and a Clash fan like me, this is probably a must-have. Even though, like, the Rocket 88 books are really, really nice quality, it's really expensive and the shipping is brutal too, but I don't know. Might have to do it. And then, to round out my list, Brent, I'm going to do a rapid-fire record store day announcement list. Ready? All right. Yeah, I'm ready. Okay, here we go. Both out on Merge, a new live Raining Sound LP, Memphis in June. Also on vinyl, a re-release of the Superchunk Incidental Music, 91 to 95. The Wipers Over the Edge Anniversary Edition on Jackpot, double color vinyl LP set. Looks good. Alice in Chains' We Die Young, 12-inch with an exclusive track. The Blue Stingrays have a seven inch brand remember uh, yeah. remember the blue stingrays yeah i listened to it it's good yeah yeah so these are from the original surf and burn sessions on epitaph yeah and this seven inch is called grits and eggs these are guys from tom petty's band if i'm not mistaken and they had this uh surf band and uh i know brant and i when that original album of theirs came out in the 90s we really dug that so cool to get some new blue stingrays mm-hmm the Damned Strawberries is being released on Strawberry Scented Vinyl Brand. 
I bet you you need that one, don't you? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe not. Uh, The Gun Club, another live album, Live at the Hacienda in 1983. The Heartbreakers, LAMF, Demo Sessions. There's a Charles Mingus, The Lost Album from Ronnie Scott's live set. Uh, Iggy Pop, Live in Berlin, 91. Man, they got uh, like one or two Iggy Pops every record store day. The Replacements, Unsuitable for Airplay, Double LP, which was on the Sorry Ma box set, but now out on vinyl. Uh, The band The Sound, whom I'm a fan of. They have their Counting the Days comp coming out on Double LP. Stiff Little Fingers, BBC, live in concert. I've already got a fair amount of Stiff Little Fingers live stuff. We'll see if we just find that randomly one day. Mike Watt and Larry Mullins are continuing their Stooges tribute. This is the Funhouse 7-inch. Uh, the third of their series so far. And then the one that I'm looking forward to the absolute most, The Bleeding Hearts, Riches to Rags. This is a power pop band that Bob Stinson formed with his roommate, Mike Leonard, uh, after he was, you know, kicked out of the replacements. But when I've heard tracks over the years, but to get an actual legit vinyl release of The Bleeding Hearts, can't wait for that. Hmm, cool. Yeah, I don't need the strawberry scented, but that... That record by The Damned is wicked. Strawberries? Yeah. Yeah, speaking of underappreciated Damned records, that's an underappreciated one, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Over to you, man. Okay, Ryan, I have a a hybrid spiel this week. Okay. It's going to, this is going to dovetail into History Lesson Part 1. Okay? Cool. Cool. Yeah. So, uh, first, I'll I'll just start with a little bit about anti-folk. I'm going oh, okay. to set the scene. Anti-folk uh, is a musical movement. I say is, present tense, because it's still happening. Yeah. So it started in the mid-1980s in New York. Uh, there were all of these younger acoustic-based singers trying to get gigs around Greenwich Village in some of the more traditional folk clubs and coffee houses, venues like Folk City, The Speakeasy, and others. In Stephen Blush's New York Rock book, Mm-hmm. He has a, just a brief few pages on the scene. He calls it an acoustic realm, equal parts beatnik poet and punk squatter. It was born of the punk clubs, not folk cafes. Anti-folk star Latch built a scene that lasted years, first in his 1984 era Rivington Street loft, The Fort, and briefly at Sophie's Bar on East 5th Street, where he'd MC anti-hootenanny open mic nights. Here's Latch from that book. When I arrived to the West Village Folk Clubs, there was no path for me the way there is one today. There was no MTV Unplugged, no Violent Femmes, no Springsteen's Nebraska. It was uncharted territory. A bunch of us just knew that there had to be something more than where folk had landed. We dug Phil Ox and Woody, but also loved Rotten and Strummer. Mm. Dylan and Woody would have fit right into the scene at the fort. Here's Paleface from the same book. He's another well-known musician from the scene. Anti-Folk started as this thing by punk rock kids with acoustic guitars who couldn't get gigs in these village 60s clubs, so they had to play in the Lower East Side art spaces and dive bars. Nobody wanted to be the next Joan Baez. It was about playing as hard and fast and loud as you could, but it was also very lyrical with all these freaky poets and performance artists before the gentrification and the riots. It was a volatile scene, 
anarchists, and Missing Foundation were all part of Antifolk. And you'll hear Roger mention, mention Missing Foundation in the interview also. They were an industrial and performance art project in the vein of Throbbing Gristle or one of those kinds of bands. Uh, their live shows were notorious for sparking civil disobedience, including the occasional riot, and for causing serious damage to venues. They were also heavily involved in the Tompkins Square riots, which Paleface has just referenced, in August of 1988. Groups of homeless people, punks, and squatters were largely taking over uh, the park, and the city imposed a curfew. So they held protest rallies, and the cops came in heavy-handed, and a riot ensued. Stephen Blush calls them, in his book, one of the most dangerous bands ever. He describes live antics like blowing up Roman candles, setting oil drums on fire, uh, spray-painting yuppies in the crowd. <laughs> Here's Bob Burt in this book. He goes, Peter Missing could be the nicest guy and then turn around and be a total asshole. One night after a gig at like 3 a.m., he was at his apartment showing us a new song. He was blasting his guitar at maximum volume, and some lady downstairs complained. So Peter goes running upstairs, and there's all this crashing, and he... He's wrecking her apartment with a baseball bat. Wow. Yeah. So you'll see pictures of Roger with uh, their logo sticker on his guitar or drawn on there. It's an mm. up upside down martini glass. Yeah. So there's a lot more to this story and this scene, and we'll get into some of it as you know the episode goes along. But basically, anti-folk was a retaliation against the folk establishment. Mm-hmm. So here's my spiel, Ryan. So I am by no means an expert. I've only just in the last few months started to source some of this stuff. But I'm going to give you and our listeners who, who may be unfamiliar with this scene five albums to check out. Ah, I'm not nice. saying these are five of the best uh, or, or even the best ones by these artists. These are just five that I was able to track down and then I dug. Cool? Yeah, please. Okay, Hamill on Trial. The stage name of Edward Hamill. He's more on the acoustic punk side of the spectrum, uh, with some spoken word thrown in. He's kind of known for his super fast and you know powerful strumming style, really aggressive and percussive. Some of it's down tuned. Sometimes he plays with distortion. He on his albums he overdubs slide guitar and other leads. He's a really good player too. His vocals can be super rapid fire sometimes. You know, he, he is a really good singer. Uh, he does some really cool spoken word pieces over top of music. Really great sense of humor, and he's not to f afraid to sing about controversial topics. Mm. And as I was listening to him, I was thinking, you know, it's no wonder Ginn was kind of attracted to this movement. You know, it kind of brought to m Minutemen to mind, almost, and they're like political folk singer yeah. leanings. Like, undoubtedly, D. Boone would have made an anti-folk record if he'd have, have lived. And, you know, with all the spoken word stuff, Ginn was putting out on New Alliance, like, right around starting this time. He was definitely into this kind of bohemian culture. Anyways, the record I checked out uh, of Hamill on Trial was his second, 1984's Big as Life on Doolittle Records. He also signed to Mercury for his third album, The Chord is Mightier Than the Sword. I'm looking forward to finding more Hamill on trial because this record is just excellent. I loved it. Cool. And, and I should mention, Ryan, that I'm choosing artists generally associated with this era and scene. Antifolk is still a movement today, mm -hmm. uh, and it's expanded into a worldwide subgenre, if you want to call it that. 
some artists like Beck, Annie DeFranco, Regina Spector, Kimye Dawson, the Moldy Peaches, Jeffrey Lewis are all kind of extensions of this early scene. The second artist I'll mention is Cindy Lee Berryhill, another key figure from the anti-folk movement. She's known for her poetic lyrics and well-detailed character sketches. Like all of these artists, the lyrics can go from deeply personal, like, baby, should I have the baby or not? Baby, should I have an abortion or not? To sometimes socio-political. I checked out her second album, 1989's Lenny K. produced Naked Movie Star, released on Rhino. Pale Face, who I mentioned a few minutes ago, another star of the scene who's never revealed his name publicly. He was roommates with Beck, and they went to many open mic nights together. He learned to write songs from Daniel Johnston, and you can hear it in his music. Danny Fields, uh, famous for signing the Stooges in MC5, managing the Ramones, discovered Pale Face at one of Latch's anti-hoot events and became his manager. I tracked down his 1991 debut on Polydor, and it's great. Much of it is just him and a, and a guitar. Sometimes the acoustics are double-tracked, but it's generally pretty sparse. There's a track on there called World Full of Cops, and it's probably the best song, you know, I've heard out of these, you know, all of these anti-folk albums. It's just a great song. Latch, Contender, 1990 debut on U.S. folk label Gold Castle, generally regarded as the leader of the scene, along with Roger. He coined the term anti-folk, credited as inspiration for many of the artists still associated with anti-folk. This album is cool. It's acoustic-based rock with a punk edge. Really reminds me of Modern Lovers at times. Catchy as hell. This is really cool stuff. Definitely more of a straight-ahead punk rock influence than some of the other stuff. Uh, it's mostly performed with a full band, too. And then, Ryan, the compilation Latches Anti-Hoot, live from the fort at Sidewalk Cafe, 1996. Sinachi Records, one of a number of of comps that came out of the scene. It's cool for a few reasons. It's live, so you get to hear all the audience participation and all of the hilarious banter and spoken word pieces, <laughs> especially from Latch, who plays, but also acts as, as host. Mm -hmm. uh, many of the artists here, like Jane Brody, Jen's Revenge, Mr. Scarecrow, never released albums, at least like commercially. There were, A lot of the anti-folk scene was built around homemade cassettes so like cassette culture was a big part of the scene so you know they they sold tapes at gigs and and things like that so some of these artists probably had tapes but you know nothing nothing you can find on discogs or anything like that so this comp's cool for that reason and you can hear some of the other folks you know attending these open mics but also to hear how diverse the scene was Brenda Kahn, another of the stars of the scene, is on here. Hamill on Trials on it. Most of these artists are just, you know, some of the lesser-known performers. Again, this is just another of these scenes that we've seen so many times that existed outside of the mainstream. Yeah. But thrived and, you know, had its own subculture. All of the artists collaborated with, with each other and supported each other. This live album just gives you a real sense of how much fun... This, you know, it would have been to, and exciting to, you know, be a part of all of this. So there you go, Ryan. Get into anti-folk. Pretty new yeah. to me, like you mentioned. Like, I had not heard this Roger Manning record. Or or any of these artists that I'm talking about right now up until a month or two ago when I started. Yeah. 
researching Roger. Did you watch any of the, uh, like there are a few mini documentaries, I guess, on Latch and anti-folk and the scene. And, and I mean, obviously they're, they're just a snapshot, but I think they give you a sense of what it's like to be there during one of those open mics. They're pretty cool. Yeah. Oh yeah. There's this scene's pretty well documented and yeah, I'm kind of, I mean, there's probably people listening to this right now that are, you know, super into this or know way more than we know. And I, I hope we, we do the scene justice because, uh, there's just so much to it. Yeah. Well, should we get into this record? Yeah, man. History lesson, part one. All right. So that's a great setup for getting into Roger's self-titled album here. I will admit right off the bat, though, that I am not someone who has historically really gotten into folk music at all. And I know you probably have dug into people like Dylan and and whatnot. And I mean, I do like Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, but I mean, is that folk music? I don't know. I just am not and never have been a folky, you know, but I do subscribe somewhat to the perspective that punk rock is a type of folk, I guess. And you might think that I, that I should do folk perhaps even because I mean, my man, John Meller went by Woody before he went by Strummer. You know, but no, it never really grabbed me. This is my first time hearing this record this week. As I said, I really, really didn't expect to like it, but I loved it, man. And I might be an anti-folky. I don't know. (laughs) But uh, I I it was it's probably one of the most unexpected listens to me. And here's part of it. I think when I got this record, I was reading the back of it. And there's so many songs that have like, you know, the blah, blah, blah blues. I thought that this was going to be like kind of a, a boring blues album. And yeah. it's not. It's it's a great record. And I'm so glad that we get to cover it. I It's a like super unexpected for me, though. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, I'm a pretty big Dylan fan and some, you know, Neil Young fan, especially. Well, not especially, but I mean, he has his, his folk kind of albums as well and comes from that scene and. Uh, I'm a fan of all kinds of roots music and and alt country and and all that kind of stuff, right? So I was kind of surprised and frankly a little embarrassed that I was completely unfamiliar with this anti-folk movement. Mm-hmm. But I got really into it, man. Yeah, I'm not sure that I'm going to become like a huge, deep anti-folk fan, if I'm being completely honest, but it's really opened my eyes and this record did the trick. Yeah, well, I... You know, some of this stuff, like Beck is probably one of the most well-known artists. I I really, again, like I really don't know Beck all that well, if I'm being honest. Like just, it's not something I've ever really, I've never gone down the, the Beck rabbit hole. I wrote it off as mainstream, yeah. I'll, if I'm being completely honest. Like I'm just, it's on the radio, I'm probably not interested. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty, it's pretty, you know, pretty close-minded, but... That's that's how I've operated for a long time. <laughs> well, I'm kind of like that too. My, I mean, is Beck mainstream though? Like, I just feel like, oh yeah, like he had those he had those huge hits, man, in the '90s. Maybe he's not anymore. Well, I would I would argue he never has been. To me, mainstream is like, you know, if I asked guys at my work if they knew who Beck was, they would they would not know. Don't they know that song, Loser? Though, come on. Well, they might know that song, but they don't know who sings it. Like, to me, mainstream is like the bands that everybody knows. I mean, I don't think 
most people, your average person knows who probably Radiohead or Arcade Fire are. Hmm. Those are, I put Beck more in that category, just like really, really popular bands and artists, but that still have a, some, a toe somewhat in the underground maybe. Yeah. But they're not, you know, the Doobie Brothers. No. Okay. I don't know. Yeah. I, I feel like I've just, you know, I have such a deep DNA entanglement in music that is typically not the mainstream. If anything is remotely popular, I just call it mainstream compared to most of what I like, you know? Yeah. And that's not, that's not to sound, that's not to sound like super music snobby. It's just, I don't know. If someone tells me this is a big hit on the radio, I'm almost always not interested. Yeah. I'm, I'm with you on that, but I don't know. Beck is one of those artists that is just so acclaimed that I don't know, maybe I should, maybe I should make more of an effort. Yeah. I know the moldy peaches though. They're on the, uh, Juno soundtrack. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. And I, I got to know them on that soundtrack. I don't know, man. Like I can listen, I listen to a lot of mainstream stuff. What I, I mean, Bob Dylan's mainstream, David Bowie is mainstream. You know what I mean? Yep. Okay. But Roger, so Roger is an acoustic based singer songwriter with an aggressive performance style and a lyrical outlook that melds the personal with the political. Here's from a New York Times article by Richard Cromlin, published in 1993. They call it anti-folk, a New York subgenre in which solo acoustic singer-songwriters do something altogether more abrasive than the sounds and images usually associated with the term folk. The punk-inspired attitude doesn't supplant folk's idealism, but it does give it a twist, loosens it up, makes it squirm. Mm. Article after article I find I found describe Roger as the most prominent figure of the scene, almost always comparing Roger to Dylan. Like musically, I, I'm not sure I would make that comparison. I can see how someone would make the comparison though. Yeah. Like if they, you know, people would hear music like that and they're they're grasping for something remotely familiar. I can see them really phoning it in and going, it's Dylan. Yeah. Roger got started busking on the streets and in the subways of New York. And on February 6, 1985, was cited by the city's transit authority police for entertaining passengers by singing, dancing, or playing any musical instrument, quote. For shame. Yeah, on a subway platform. Roger made the decision to contest the ticket, and the court eventually found in their favor. The People versus Manning became well known for being the first case where constitutional protection was explicitly given to subway performance. Unfortunately, the MTA just began harassing the performers in other ways, like writing tickets for things like blocking traffic, soliciting money for goods, uh, etc. Mm. Here's from the bio on Roger's website. The music evolved in the streets, subways, and clubs of New York City throughout the 1980s. Hitchhiking, street singing, low-income living, disgust with authority, and pondering the mysteries of love and beauty. Song rhythms were largely drawn from music being spun in New York clubs like Danceteria, The Ritz, and The Palladium. Early influences also include Kerouac, Led Zeppelin, Joni Mitchell, Sonic Youth, Public Enemy, The Clash, Woody Guthrie, Big Audio Dynamite. Various fellow downtown New York performers, including King Missile's John S. Hall and Billy Syndrome, also. So, prior to this, there was a pre-SST release of sorts, a homemade cassette, that Roger sold at CBGB's canteen and presumably at gigs while busking. 
Also, mostly uh, live, recorded by Brenda Kahn, who I believe he was dating at some point. Uh, she's another uh, artist associated with the anti-folk scene. There, uh, and a few of the songs on there ended up on this SST album. Mm-hmm. Uh, following his debut on SST, Roger recorded an experimental album under the name Joe Folk and the Soho Valley Boys called Missile Foundation, released on New York uh, label 109 Records, which seemed to focus on the more experimental side of the anti-folk scene. 109 Records, Ryan, released a few comps with a total who's who from the scene. There's one called Broom Closet Anti-Folk from 1989, uh, and you'll hear more about the Broom Closet right away here in the interview with Roger. Uh, That album also features Kirk Kelly, another star of the anti-folk movement, who we'll be checking out on SST 223. Yeah. Uh, There's another comp on 109 called White Trash New York Folk Volume 1, which also features Roger, Lauren Stober, Billy Syndrome, and Tom Clark. Now dig this, Ryan. Tom is on both of these comps, and also on the Latch one I mentioned earlier during my spiels. There's a, a great article about these comps called Folk with Attitude, I found, and it, it talks all about the performers. Here's what it says about Tom Clark. They describe him as long-haired, leather-clad, mo- motorcycle-booted. And then it says, Tom was once a part of a hardcore band in Chicago called Tar. Oh, wow. And he, it says he now has a solo cassette, acoustic caffeine, and a soon-to-be-released album on Paris, New York's PNYN Records. His, Tom Clark's uh, page on Discogs is completely blank. So I don't know if any of that stuff came out. Uh, and as I mentioned, a lot of this scene was built around self-released cassettes, uh, many of which you don't see on Discogs. The only Tom associated with Tar I could found is Tom Zalakji. Mm-hmm. So who knows? Like... Tar didn't start releasing stuff until 88, 89, like right around the time these comps were coming out, so who knows? Maybe he was in the band before their recorded history? Blatant Descent, maybe. Maybe it's a different Tar from Chicago. Maybe. The article, by the way, Ryan, also um, describes Kirk Kelly as a James Deanish folk punk with working class Irish roots with an album on SST titled Go Man Go, which is one of the slogans of the anti-folk scene, Go Man Go. In the article, it says, Kelly describes his music as a cross between Jello Biafra, Woody Guthrie, Phil Ox, the Clancy Brothers, and Batman. So there's a little teaser for episode 223. Yeah, I'm pretty sure, like, Tom Clark in Tar. I'm not sure it's, I'm not sure it's the same Tom. I feel like it's probably from the band before, Blatant Descent. Hmm. Worth checking out, though. Yeah. Uh, Billy Syndrome, Ryan, who I just mentioned, and he'll come up in the interview too. He has a pretty far out album of minimalist avant-garde noisy rock with synths on it and some spoken word. It's called Vicious Burger. It's on 109 Records. It's pretty pretty cool. The Joe Folk Project is up on Rogers Bandcamp and Billy Syndrome uh, and John S. Hall of King Missile who was also heavily involved in the scene, are both on it. Latch is on it. I think members of Missing Foundation. Side one of that is just all over the place, from like industrial noise jams to doomy-sounding bluegrass. And side two has, you know, some spoken words, some folk standards. It's another wild album and, and worth your time if you want to get some 
arty avant-garde mixed in with your anti-folk? I likely do. Yeah. And then to confuse everyone further, uh, <laughs> Roger's next release release is credited to Roger Manning and the Soho Valley Boys. Released in 1993 on Shimmy Disc. Mm-hmm. Also up on Roger's Bandcamp. It's a little bit more of a full band affair than the debut, but it's very similar to this one from a yeah. songwriting perspective. Did you dig into Roger's Shimmy Disc stuff? Yeah. Yeah, it's good. It like I said, it's a lot like this one, just you know, with a with a full band. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense for it to come out on Shimmy Disc too. Yeah. The third record from nineteen ninety five was released on Mall Records in Germany and Shinachi in the US. It's all four track, but it sounds great. Mostly full band. Again, similar to this one musically. Uh, there's a bunch of cool stuff to check out on Rogers Bandcamp, like yeah. a second Joe Folk album, some demos, a record from 2014. Uh, the version of this SST album that's up there, Roger calls it the Make Under version. It's alternate versions of the same songs in the same order as the SST version. Some are live, some are alternate takes from the same sessions. Roger's website as well is good. Check out Roger's website and the Bandcamp. Yeah. Uh, that... 109 Records, that's Steve Gabe, who owned a clothing store at 109 St. Mark's Place, also the home of the label. I found a cool thing with uh, with Steve where he talks about the Tompkins, Tompkins Square riots being the impetus behind the white trash comp. You know, the idea was to feature protest songs from artists who had participated in the riots or the protest. Do you want to kick it over to Roger? Yeah. All right, we're joined on the podcast today by Roger Manning. Roger, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Okay, I want to go back to your childhood. You grew up in Springville, New York? Well, you've done your homework, yes. <laughs> Springville, New York, and western New York, uh, a little bit south of Buffalo, or as um, some people used to say, instead of saying 30 miles south of Buffalo, they would say 100 miles south of Toronto. Because ah. <laughs> I like to, <laughs> you know, Buffalo didn't have... A, and turned them on so much. Right. How big is Springville? About three or 4,000 people. I'm not sure how big it is now, but that, at that time. Right. Uh, when did you start playing guitar? I guess when I was uh, 15 or so. And what were kind of your your first influences? Like, what, what was the first music that grabbed you that made you want to play guitar? Hmm. Led Zeppelin, maybe. Led Zeppelin, Neil Young, The Who Live at Leeds, and a lot of power chord kind of stuff. And then Joni Mitchell and, and Melanie, and on the, uh, the more feminine side of things, um, had a lot to offer lyrically, I think. Yeah, I saw a photo of you in high school, and you had incredibly long hair. So I, I was wondering, like, was Roger, like, a rocker in high school? Well, actually, you know, that's reminding me. See, um, <laughs> that's so long ago. Grand Funk Railroad was a huge influence. Mm-hmm. Uh, musically, the lyrics, their lyrics weren't so great, though, you know, um, but... It's kind of a Mark Farner lookalike in that in that photo that I think you're probably referring to. Mm-hmm. Were you like going to Buffalo to see bands or to Toronto? Um, no, I, I I was a late starter in a lot of ways, and um, and I was a bit too young to go out and get to these concerts of people who who I really I never got to see Grand Funk, but eventually, yeah, like with my dad driving us to Buffalo, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Led Zeppelin was my first concert, actually. Oh, wow. What year would have that been? Uh, 
early 70s, I guess. So a town of 3,000 people, I'm guessing you were kind of on an island yourself. I'd, I'd, I'd say so, yeah. What? You know, like in terms of the political and social mm-hmm. movements and stuff, it, it was somewhat insulated there. Yeah. Not a bad place, though. I mean, people would vote Republican, I believe, but yet at the same time they were... That's because they didn't know what else to vote for, and they were fairly liberal-minded in, in a small town, so it wasn't wasn't the worst place to grow up. You were into like progressive politics already, like in high school. I didn't know enough, but um, I think I had a natural resistance to authority kind of thing. Yeah, uh, just intuitively. Um, although there was, it was like towards the end of the Vietnam War stuff, uh, so there was, you know, we were all anti-war, you know. Right. Yeah. And and there was a civil rights movement, you know, that had been going on for a while at that point. Um, and we were definitely pro-civil rights. So the basics were there. Okay, so before you go to New York, you made a stop off in New Haven? Yeah. I, I went to a couple of years of uh, what they call um, SUNY, uh, State University of New York College, like a two-year program that got me to New Haven the uh, learning how to repair musical instruments. That was the, um, the curriculum was like woodwind and, and brass instrument repair, mm-hmm. like a sort of semi-liberal arts, semi-technical kind of curriculum. And then I lived in New Haven for a few years, uh, working in a music store and that kind of thing. Were you playing in bands or starting to play out on your own at that point? Well, my first band was in Springville, like a, a kind of a power trio kind of thing or an attempt at one. There's no real recording for that, unfortunately. I was kind of fun to try to listen to it. But, you know, we weren't, we were playing, uh, we were covering Grand Funk and uh, what else were I don't, uh, Rolling Stones and stuff like that, like classic rock. Um, although we needed more songs, like, just to make them up. I didn't even think that it was a big deal. Oh, we need a few songs to make a few up. And there's actually pieces of some of those songs and that came, they got recycled later. Mm-hmm. But, then uh, when I went to college, I actually ended up in, in the jazz band, uh, like the college stage band, you know, the brass and, right. and saxophones, and, and they had you know, like a place for a guitar player, and so I learned how to play jazz chords to a degree. And then in New Haven, at some point, I still haven't really come into the, the solo acoustic kind of stuff yet. I haven't really latched onto that yet. But when I got to New Haven, so I went there to work at this music store in the in the Woodwind Repair Department, and um, I strolled in with a backpack and everything else, and they're like, oh, who's this, you know, road warrior, goofball, uh, you know, beatnik coming in here? And then jokingly gave me a book, a little music book called The Backpacker's Songbook, mm-hmm. and it's basically it was a folk songbook. And I really didn't know anything about folk songs or, you know, basic American-type folk songs, and... Um, and at that point, I had no confidence in being able to sing and stuff. And this book was sort of interesting because there were really simple songs that I could kind of, I could pull off. And the first one was called The Talking Blues. I didn't even have to sing. <laughs> so that kind of got me interested in that kind of thing. And one thing led to another, eventually um, getting a guitarist that sounded really good and, and street performing, actually. I kind of together, brought it together for me to play like a kind of a solo rocking kind of I don't want you, you know, performance. When did you first realize that maybe you had some songwriting chops? Hmm. Yeah, yeah, you know, early on, and for a lot of people, you 
you know, it doesn't really occur to you that for a lot of people anyway, you have to make up your own songs because you're so busy enjoying playing all these songs that you like. Uh, but I think that the really, and it happened with instrumental and, and moving things forward was, uh, well, I was into radio. I'd done some college radio, and I got there to New Haven, and they had the Yale radio station, which allowed uh, non-students to participate in it. And I ended up there, and I ended up inheriting the folk music show because the Yale student was going away for the summer, and no one else cared about the folk music stuff. And But I just barely got introduced to it myself, and I was interested in that. And anyhow, being in that radio station um, exposed me to a lot of music, not just folk music, but jazz. And then the the punk slash new wave stuff was coming around. And um, that, I think, was that stimulated some interest in making up original songs. But uh, I don't think it was until I got into New York that I really actually started trying to make up my own songs, actually. What brought you to New York? A job offer in radio, actually. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, well, it was uh, as a board operator, not as a on-air personality or anything like that. But, um, I mean, I, I tell you, you know, I'm a person of, low middle income my whole life yet here i was at the yale radio station so i got the advantage of the kind of like yale connection um one of the persons at the yale radio station their family owned a radio station in new york and they need uh you know a low-cost board operator and i got sort of drafted into that job and then i never expected to move to new york city i was pretty city uh phobic mm-hmm. um i grew up in a small town and new haven had and had some rough times there, and I thought New York would be, like, really rough, but I just needed to get out of New Haven at that point. I was ready to move on, and so I took the job and immediately fell in love with New York, by the way. Awesome place. And then um, I kind of fell into the open mic scene in the a, in a village, and I, everybody's writing their own songs. There's all these narcissists there kind of, you know, not even having second thoughts about doing their own thing, and I thought, oh. Yeah, I made the point, and I think that might have been partly what moved me forward that way. Okay, uh, explain to me what was going on with busking in New York at that time. Was there actually like a city ordinance kind of outlying it? I guess you saw my my court case from. I from, did, from yeah, the yeah. Tell me about that. I got turned on the busking actually in Montreal. Mm. Um, on an early trip up into Canada, my. My um, girlfriend at the time, her family had a place up in the woods up there, <laughs> and I would make these trips up into uh, Quebec. And going through Montreal, I saw street performers, and I said, wow, I want to come back and do that someday. And then eventually I made a trip to Montreal. It was my first street performing was in Montreal, and I was extremely excited and really enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, and then um, when I got to New York, I did some of that too, in Washington Square Park and wherever I could. And it was kind of hitting this. It's like, remember, I remember getting the cops come after me on Bleecker Street because, you know, it's like uh, people might complain about the sound and that kind of thing. So it's kind of always been kind of quasi-legal, although it, was, um, it is, you know, it's sort of a First Amendment, um, you know, U.S. Constitution First Amendment angle on, on whether it's legal or not. Um, that, that came into play, as you may have seen in my court case, that came later. The, actually, but, um, there's a, a song on, that we might get to, and it's not on my first album, it's on the SSD album, but it, 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 it refers to, um, I was exercising a weaker muscle of freedom of speech. I hope you can ask this stuff, I'm just rambling on. But, but anyway, to more directly answer your question, yeah, it's, 
it was always quasi-legal, but you're always at the mercy of the cops. And in fact, if you've seen the back of my SS, they're called the SSP guitar. It's the guitar I have with the big SSP sticker on it. Yeah. Um, what you have seen, if you look at the SSP album, um, I'm leaning over my guitar and you're, you're seeing the I don't even remember what <laughs> but there's the picture of the back of my guitar it has all these CDs carved into yeah, it. Yeah, I've seen it. Right. So that that um that started when after the cops almost they had their hands on my guitar in Baker Street and almost got it took it away from me and then I got it back and I said, I'm gonna brand this thing. <laughs> I get it. There's no way they're gonna not know that, you know, be able to identify it. Um that's where that started. But more direct your question is, uh, yeah, in 1985, I was singing in the subway and getting lots of $10 tickets for from the police from uh, doing that, and I ended up fighting it in court, and we won, and it was a major step in legalizing subway singing in New York, or subway performing, not just singing. Before we go any further, I have to just check with you about the term anti-folk and whether you, <laughs> where you stand with that term. I, I, I don't know. I mean, how much of my materials have you looked at? Like, did you see the video where I make some snarky remark about that on like one of the YouTube? I I haven't. I just I know some artists, and I can't really blame them. Just you know, are sick of having these arbitrary references. Always, you know, follow them their whole career. So, just curious where where you you know how you how you stand. Yeah, that. I, well, it's like the anti folk. Uh, do you have a little background on how that came about? A little bit. I mean, I know about, you know, kind of about Latch and the Fort. and Yeah. It, it seems like there's a little bit of speculation on how much of a outright ban there was on, you know, artists like yourself. But it was definitely seemed like it was, you know, the establishment was, uh, you know, not so much into to what you were doing, maybe. Well, it's like, I'd try to give you a brief history on... So a little a while ago, I mentioned that I got into the open mic scene in, the, in, in Greenwich Village at the time, and that sort of led to other things. And so that's where I met Latch initially. I remember Latch coming in with a keyboard to this sort of singer-songwriter, folk guitar-oriented um, you know, open mic nights. And, and so the folkies were like, who is this person? You know, this is, you know, this doesn't fit, <laughs> that kind of thing. And, and then, then Latch eventually uh, got a went ahead and got a guitar, and I'm I, I'm proud to say I showed him his first G chord on that and got helped a little bit there to get him. They went to, actually, that, that scene was pretty receptive to me because at that time I was still, still doing a lot of folk kind of stuff, you know. I hadn't done any originals, but it, it, they could see that I, you know, had a feeling for that kind of thing. And Plus, I volunteered uh, as part of the sound crew for the... Uh, the, the, the co-op, which is one of the places that we hung out at. And had, uh, the point being is that Latch wasn't so re- well received, so he basically started up his own scene, the fort, in the east, Lower East Side, which was a lot wilder at the time, uh, and basically in a storefront where he lived on Rivington Street. So the rejection was there to a degree, but not so much to all of us. Um, but I, I also wanted to branch out more and um, it took me a little while to go east, you might say, and I'm glad I did, and benefited a lot from what, you know, what Latch got started there. There was, a, it wasn't just the fort, but right across the street was this place called ABC No Real, which was like an art 
spaces started out as a squat and then um on sunday nights they had this open mic kind of thing which wasn't just music but it was also i i saw my first performance art and stuff there it was pretty cool mm-hmm. and uh a lot of poets and stuff like that that the abc no real sunday night scene was really formative for a lot of us and especially me and then it was great because on saturday night you were at the fort and then on sunday night you went across the street to um abc no real and um Anti-folk. So, uh, so they had, were having this calling. It was the Greenwich Village Folk Festival every year, which was just kind of a loose set of shows in, in the um, around McDougal Street, the club, Folk City, and the Speakeasy, and that kind of thing. And Latch decided to start up the um, New York City Anti-Folk Festival. So it wasn't, and it wasn't anti-folk music. It was like an anti-folk festival festival. Right. And so uh, you know, and I can. Uh, I will testify that Latch came up with the term. Well, Latch and Cindy Lee Berryhill, I think, might have come up with that together. In any case, that's where that term anti-folk started um, to, to sort of title this mini-festival. And then, of course, uh, it just became a term. And personally, I don't know, I thought it was kind of cool and, kind of, well, kind of punk and kind of folk. It's like Latch would say, uh, Hank Williams and Patty Smith had a baby and we're it kind of thing. I thought that was pretty good. <laughs> Um, and we, and by that time, definitely, I would, I'm, New Haven was a big uh, discovery time for me with the Ramones and, and the Clash in particular. Mm-hmm. And, um, and a lot of those groups at the time actually came to New Haven and we got to see them. I remember seeing the Plasmatics and and uh, who knows who else. I mean, uh, and the Dictators and the Southern Ramones like seven times. And I never got to see the Clash. Um, <clears throat> but... So that all that stuff was welcome within this anti-folk vibe, and and but then this what's it eighty-five or so, and then a few years later, I felt that anti-folk was kind of like kind of passe at that point. So I kind of quit using the term or whatever. But then I got on the road after my SSD album came out, and um, the first tour, um, I could see these posters from my shows saying, you know, SSD folk artist Roger Manning. I'm like, oh, that's never gonna do. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, oh, no, I'm going to use the anti-folk. It's a good marketing term because it lets people know that, oh, yeah, maybe it's a little different. Right. So I hope that helped actually spread the anti-folk term nationally in the U.S., I think, a bit, because I toured like mad just mm-hmm. all the time. I'd, I would likely continue doing that, actually, um, to, to get back up. So my feeling is uh, I don't mind. <laughs> it's okay with me. Uh, you know, although it, it's like it can mean almost anything. Well, it seems like that scene was more than just music. Like you mentioned poetry. It seems like, you know, maybe some alternative type of comedians were, you know, also playing kind of the same clubs. Well, yeah, actually, yeah, I don't know. You're making me remember a lot of stuff, so I'm just stealing, obviously. But um, <laughs> uh, people would ask me, yeah, here's the short answer. People, Roger, what's anti-folk? And I go, well, no, folk music's for folkies, but anti-folk is for everyone. Right. everyone. Yeah. Um, and, oh my God, yeah, so, you know what really kind of helped pull the anti-folk thing together was this zine. It's called, um, Exposure, Exposer, oh, okay. kind of like Exposer, yeah. and, um, it would have a folk hunk of the month, like a naked centerfold, and I got to be the first one, <laughs> holding my guitar in front of my privates, but, um, and, um, and all kinds of people had done it later, it was pretty cool. But the thing is, besides bragging about that that it pulled things, a lot of 
you know, all kinds of stuff together. So we're definitely into um, hip-hop and and nihilistic noise metal from, like, Missing Foundations, the local band, um, whose symbols I'm throwing my guitars upside, upside down, martini glass, and, and, and punk rock, and just hardcore folk or fiddle tunes and stuff like that. It was, but I found out at some point in time that there's been scenes like that in New York in the past, like in East Village where everybody, you know, there'd be all these creative people together in a, in a, in a cafe, but they're all from these different, you know, um, disciplines or, or branches of things, you know, spoken word and poetry and, and uh, or, or musicians or, or visual artists. And that's what, what happened at ABC No Rio, too. Um, like I was saying, there's performance art, there was poetry, there was uh, music, there was, you know, theater, all on a Sunday night. It was pretty awesome. I met John S. Hall from King Missile. That's the first time I saw him. Yeah, and you did a bit of that yourself later on with uh, Joe Folk and the Soho Valley Boys with, uh, well, you mentioned uh, King Missile and uh, John, and I think Billy Syndrome was kind of loosely involved in all that. Um, yeah, to me, Billy Syndrome was the epitome of anti-folk. It's brilliant. Um, and that, that first Joe Folk cassette is, is basically named after, uh, you know, the name of it is um, Missile Foundation. Mm-hmm. There's... Um, it's that, well, that obviously is melting together of King Missile and Missing Foundation into a name, but it's like Billy Syndrome is the sort of backbone of, the whole, of that whole tape. Okay, I want to ask you about some of these songs. So uh, first of all, right off the bat, the choice to to use the word blues on everything, <laughs> is that like a, why did you make that choice? Is that a tribute to somebody or? It's a running joke. Yeah. <laughs> it's well, a, it's, it's like, a good one. It's like it goes back to my New Haven um, radio uh, hosting days, where I would host a folk show, and I didn't really know that much about a lot of folk music. That's where I really learned about a lot of it. They had this whole section in the, in the the record racks of where all the folk music records were piled together, and if something didn't have drums, I would play it, mm-hmm. <laughs> and just learn about all the the country blues artists and the bluegrass old time and uh, and then the you know rambling Jack Elliott, Woody Guthrie and Joan Baez and um, and the Irish music and Scottish music and Zydeco, all this stuff. And I noticed, you know, a lot of these these folky singer songwriters that they'd have you know that's what how they title these songs. Right. And I go, some of them were like, that's not a blues, <laughs> but that's what they called it, and I thought that was kind of cool, so yeah. that's what I did. Yeah. Okay, the number 14 blues, and it has Steve Danzinger, if I'm saying that right, on drums. Who's Steve? Ah, Steve Danzinger, good drummer. He played with King Missile uh, a few years later, actually. uh, um, It's one of King Missile's rotating drummers. Um, I met Steve, though, in the local music scene uh, once he was playing with Tyrannosaurus. Have you ever heard of them? No, who are they? They were kind of a pop rock sounding band with all toy instruments. Oh, okay. You know, toy drum set, uh, toy guitars, toy piano, and they, they were good, too. It's like musical. And somehow I knew him through that scene. He was longtime friends with John S. Hall, the guy from King Missile. Yeah. And uh, I don't remember how he, he agreed to play with me, but that's, that's who Steve is. Okay. He's out in California somewhere now. Uh, the song mentions Kirk Kelly. Now, we're going to see Kirk. We haven't gotten to his record yet on SST. 
Um, he 204. I'm 203, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm. He's not 204. He's uh, Pretty close, 223. Yeah. So a ways. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. No yeah. Uh, were you the Kirk Kelly connection to SST? Um, I think we're kind of simultaneous, mm. and I was trying to remember how SST got onto me. It was, I'm pretty sure, through Chris, Kristen Johnson who put together that zine, uh, Exposure. Mm-hmm. I think knew some people there that worked there. She had friends there. Okay. She was she was in New York, um, and uh, actually was my manager for a while. You know, she needed a job, and I needed a manager, and she said, oh, I'll learn how to do this, and that was one of those uh, arrangements. Anyway, so Chris, but before that happened, um, Kristen, I think, got my, I had a cassette release that um, I put out, just a, you know, made-at-home cassette release that I would sell at CBGB's music. I had a place called CBGB's Canteen next to the main club. Okay. And it was like it was a record store and a performance space. It was a really cool place to hang out, and you could bring your stuff there and consign it. And that's, I had a pretty good, uh, pretty good sales there. This cassette, and uh, Kristen must have sent it to California or something like that. And um, maybe I mentioned him to them too. I don't know. I think we might have both. Kristen might have mentioned both of us to them. Uh, SSD. Like, something like that is how it happened. The cassette you're talking about is that the Bandcamp version of this album nope even before that oh, so okay. uh, the band camp you know the, what, what do i call the band camp the um the, the do under or what, yeah. the make under because yeah. <laughs> it's pretty a lot of it's cassette recorded stuff like uh, like that but it was it had this similar quality that it, it was before that and there's there's songs on that that are the first cassette that still haven't been released really that i should get around to someday it says you recorded this one at the broom closet. What yeah. was is that? What is that? <laughs> <laughs> uh, not to give away too much, but it's a very small, very small apartment on Broom Street, mm. and I, I'm there right now talking to you. Ah, okay. So there was a, and in fact, I can the machine that I used to record that on is sitting over here. It's a four-track Tascam cassette uh, multi-track recorder. Mm. So this was all just live to four track. Yep, had Stephen here with the drum and everything. Oh, there's two tracks on there on the on the album that were recorded in eight track. At NYU had this had this um, in their film school they had this um, eight track studio stuck in there. Okay, you'll have to tell me which ones those are when we get there if if you remember. Um, um, yeah. Your all your vocals are are live as well. Yeah, I don't. I might have punched in a few things here and there. That, stuff but it, it's yeah everything's live I, and to this day i just i cannot i'm so i have a major fear of recording i really dislike recording and so it's better if we we do it live and um maybe fix little bits or something if we have to yeah uh john gurin and veronica tool i'm assuming helped run the four track or punch you in or whatever uh that's the two and white Ah, the okay. two uh, A-track um, items. Although, and I guess Veronica, maybe they help some more of uh, mastering or something, but I don't think so. Okay. No, they would. They were like the NYU connection. That makes and, sense. And, Ver- and Veronica helped. Uh, well, she then she moved out to California. She helped type up the liner notes for my second album. Uh, John, you should look him up. He's he was um, in a well-known band, 
I'll just let you find out. Okay. I'll, <laughs> I'll Google that one. Yeah. The Pearly Blues. Now, I feel like this was, you know, kind of a hit for you. I'm using air quotes, but it seemed like a really popular one. Yeah, I guess. Um, actually, that, that's my most distributed song ever because um, German Rolling Stone, a number of years ago, was it 10 years ago, maybe? A German Rolling Stone would uh, include a free CD disc with uh, their magazine and you know, compilations and stuff, and uh, that ended up on there, so that got distributed to tens of thousands of people in Germany. Okay. And and it, what was kind of nice was the the title of the C, uh, that compilation was "This Is Not a Folk Song," you know, <laughs> taking from. Yeah. Um, pretty pleased with that. Yeah, I get still get. I got a request for that last time I got to play pre-COVID in New York. Yeah. Is that the blue? Yeah. It mens- it mentions Michelle shocked. Yeah, actually, I got to play. Um, that was it was also right pre-COVID. Um, got to play a show with Michelle. At, uh, towards the end of the Sidewalk Cafe um, run, um, you know, sort of anti-folk headquarters in East Village. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I don't think she'd ever heard me play it live, so I got to play it to her <laughs> that night. Yeah, and it mentions com- Combat Rock, too. The There's the there's the clash coming into the picture. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that I, I need to annotate the lyrics for that, just, you know, just, just type it up and put it, I've been meaning to do that where it kind of fills, it sort of gives the background to a lot of the references in mm-hmm, that. There's, yeah. there's, there's a whole lot of many of them, more than uh, can probably be safe to <laughs> include. But do you, do you understand what that This Is Not A Folk Song references? The only thing I, that comes to mind is Public Image Limited, This Is Not A Love Song. That's it, yep. yeah. This Is Not A Love Song. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So people from that era, they used to crack up when they heard that. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and a bunch of this stuff. <laughs> okay, the lefty rhetoric blues. I, a bit of a maybe a dig at sloganeering or, or something like that. I, I'm wondering if you ever took shit for for that one from you know your your left leaning friends. Um, no, no. Although I remember the remember the, the sort of uh, the singer songwriter folkies I mentioned earlier in the, the West Village uh, singer-songwriter scene, I kind, of, I kind of suburban style folk singers, you know, I'm, I'm kind of mean when I say things like that, I know. But they, they uh, or at least one of them, oh, were like, uh, you know, kind of making fun of the song being simplistic and, 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 that, and that kind of thing. And I'm like, yeah, you know, do it yourself. Right. Now there's so much, yeah, there's, there's so much behind the uh, there's so much background to that song too. You know, it was uh, the thing that, that really made me feel validated in particular. Though it's on it's on my website. It's the review from this guy in Dallas, Texas, that uh, centers on that song, and it's, okay. he got it. You know, your own activism. Like, are you were you playing at like protest rallies or on picket lines or for you know benefit shows and things like that? Yeah. Uh, in fact, one thing I did kind of get sick of is people considering me a, a, a political, a, you know, performer, a political singer, a political artist. Because actually, the majority of the songs aren't political. Right. But that's the thing that stuck with them, or that's a, that was the easy uh, label uh, in some cases. Um, you know, I guess I was considered political because I 
about the law and, and one with regard to subway thinking. But, you know, a lot of the benefits and stuff that I ended up supporting at a certain point in time was um, in the, uh, around Thompson Square Park in the East Village, the, the squats in particular, the homesteaders and squatters, you know, and, and people fighting over for public space and, and things like that. And then, of course, then, oh my gosh, uh, the, the first Persian Gulf War, the early 90s, um, yeah, I was already kind of uh, anti-authority authority already before that and somewhat political, but after that, I just I couldn't shut up for at least the first half of the 90s when I was on tour. And this is all after the SST uh, album, obviously, although that's it. Um, that was, yeah, my first tour on the SST album was 89, so that's right before that happened. But uh, then Bush was a big issue then, and uh, so it was gearing up. And um, one situation in particular, you mentioned Michelle Shock, was I opened for Michelle Shock in Chicago right at that same time the flag burning issue had come up nationally again and um, particularly because this guy Joey Johnson burned a flag at the um, Republican National Convention in Dallas and but what brought it to head in Chicago and I guess this would be 89 I guess uh, was that the Art Institute of Chicago had this specific installation of an American flag laying on the floor and a little podium on the wall right over it, where you were supposed to write your opinion of how the flag should be displayed properly, the American flag, and you said you had to walk in the flag to go there and write on it, and that was a huge controversy. Right. And Michelle and I were, in, were asked to show up at the press conference the next day and each give, you know, make a statement. Um, that that was definitely another turning point in my increasing my political um, involvement. I think. And there's a song that came out, yeah, um, the, the Shimmy Disc album that's all about that. On the follow-up to this one? Yeah. The Dallas Blues. Joey White, Joey wants to shed some light. Lights up the flag to shed a little light. Okay, the Hitchhiker's Blues. Did you hitchhike? Absolutely. I hitchhike a lot. Just after my high school years, I hitchhiked cross-country a few times. Although, I, and I, you know, I slept outside and did that kind of traveling. Uh, even before I read On the Road by Jack Kerouac, mm-hmm. <laughs> which came much later. Uh, and Snowy Frost and Darren Cottonfield said, I, I remember, I hitchhiked cross country in the dead of winter <laughs> and slept outside of Sweetwater, Texas in my sleeping bag and um, woke up the next morning with the, the Snowy Frost and the Darren Cottonfield, which made it look like I had cotton, even though the cotton wasn't just then. And uh, I thought about the Freedom Riders going across the South and thinking how, as a Caucasian American, I could hitchhike across the South and be a less worried about somebody being, you know, bad to me or that kind of thing. And so it got me thinking about all the, you know, what the rest of the song talks about. But uh, an ongoing theme in my life or in my songs uh, has been uh, sort of a discuss with urban middle class America, sort of consumerism and all these other things that can't be a part of that. The West Valley Blues seems autobiographical for sure. Um, Absolutely, yeah. yeah. This is your. This is you growing up in Springville. Yeah. Um, what's uh, 
what was kind of fun about the Make Under version of you know the this album is I got to uh, use a, a live recording of me playing that song for the first time in Springville. Um, I was being interviewed on a radio program there. Mm. And it's funny, I think <laughs> the DJ says, wow, is that a true story? I mean, when you live there, that you know, they they don't inform you, you know. They don't want you to know. Uh, but, yeah, my dad, all this stuff about my father being a, uh, hired as a photographer at this a nuclear fuels re- uh, reprocessing plant is true, and he did die of some strange cancer, and so did some other people there. Um, that was, um, that's one, probably the earliest song of that, of that batch. That was probably the first, like, I think it was the second song ever put together that stuck. And it was, actually, the lyrics were published in um, Broadside Magazine, which is a like a folk song zine from back, goes way back decades and decades yeah it definitely grabbed me i grew up in a up here in canada in a small a town of three thousand people with a pulp and paper paper mill and we just have mm. incredibly high rates of leukemia oh god in that town right yeah. so it's definitely struck a chord with me uh, and you dedicate the the album to your dad yeah the next song strange little blues this one, uh, you mentioned Cindy Lee Berryhill. A lot of name dropping. Yeah. So, um, well, this whole anti-folk thing that started up, mm-hmm. there was sort of a core, I call it the Gang of Four. Latch, Kirk Kelly, myself, and Cindy. Uh, you mentioned the Gang of Four, and I'm not sure which song, but now that you say that, I... That's a different Gang of Four. Ah, uh, okay, yeah. The... Oh, that's right, that's in the um, uh, Blues for the Chosen, too. Mm-hmm, yep. Um, but anyway, getting back to this one, um, oh my gosh, yeah, there was somebody I was totally crushed out on who I'm singing about in that song. But also, I'd just come back from Europe and had played that guitar in Pompeii. There's a photo of it on my website of these guys in Pompeii holding the guitar. Um, I don't know, it's just kind of a fun, goofy song that obviously, it, um, it's, a, it's a kind of crossover between the, all that bluegrass stuff I've been playing up until when I started putting together my own songs and and having and some rock and roll all put together. There's a there's a kind of a flat picking in there. Uh, I can't remember the fifth there's a fiddle tune that that uh, is what I'm playing during the breaks between verses. Mm-hmm. And it draws you know, Woody Guthrie is mentioned in there, right? Yep. Runs a sing along. Yeah, I I mean you mentioned you didn't really like getting tagged with the uh, you know, the protest singer or whatever i like this one and you just mentioned and a lot of these are they're really love songs absolutely you know what it is is it's like you're singing about what you're experiencing and also subway you know um, busking and street performing and subway singing has has a lot to do with how how i choose what i do with, with the songs it's like yeah they're from my life but it's stuff that it's gonna people are going to get something out of listening to. It's not just, for me, it's, it's, I'm trying to connect with the, the listener. Mm-hmm. I mean, basically, I consider myself an entertainer, not really a musician, because I'm not that quick <laughs> But I, I'm, I'm interested in, in singing and playing and connecting and, and you know, people enjoying it, I guess, or getting something out of it. Yeah. The Airport Blues, Jason Goodrow on bass. Who's Jason? 
his dad's actually was a well-known actor, Jerry Goodrow. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I didn't realize that. <laughs> but Jason, a really good musician, all-around musician, mostly a guitar player, actually. Um, he played with Latch, too. He play, he would play bass for different people who needed it. And I need I wanted some bass playing. So, you know, this is just the local scene at the time. And, and he said, yeah, I'll do it. Um, and the airport, please, there's a pop song for you, huh? Yeah. Here's a fun fact for that one, something I'll never forget, or I wonder if, you know, if I do things differently now, but I was playing at a place called the Knitting Factory in New York, or the original Knitting Factory. And um, afterwards, Sean Colvin uh, came up to me and asked me if I was interested in having anybody record that song, and I'm like, no. Because I wanted to put it out before anybody else, because that was, to me, was like, okay, this is the song that can help draw attention to my other music because it's you know an accessible song and that kind of thing right yeah and at the time she was recording her first album uh, and i was a big fan of hers by the way um still am mm-hmm. it wasn't anything like that but um who knows what would happen if sean Copeland had actually <laughs> recorded that song <laughs> um but i think there was a there was a little bit of there was kind of a a little bit of something that kind of factored in here which is kind of a drag which that's an anti-folk crowd with, like, you know, bad-mouthing the West Village. <laughs> Singer-songwriter thing, like, oh, we're so glad we're not stuck there, and that kind of thing. And, and Sean was more associated with that side of things. Um, and so maybe she took it as an insult that we were excluding her from that little bit. It's like being snotty. I was being a bit punk, you know? Yeah. Feeling my oats. And I didn't mean to, like, you know put her down or anything because I, I used to go hear her thing all the time in her early days and um, that kind of thing and I did her sound a bunch of times and it was cool I got them take you talk to Sean say hey are you ever going to record that song of Rogers you know? <laughs> okay the number 16 blues now this is live uh, produced by Brenda Kahn also <laughs> part of the scene so I'm assuming it was her who recorded it do you know where yeah there was what's the tramp I think it was tramp or, or it was in this, there was this club called Tramps that used to be in a really small place, then it moved to a big place and had a bunch of you know, more famous shows there eventually. Um, but in any case, so I'm playing on a small stage and I have my four-track Porter Studio cassette you know, recorder sitting on the edge of the stage. And, and so Brenda was kind enough to, uh, you know, turn it on. You read it? Yeah. I guess I call her Bud. You, re- you ready yet, Bud? And she, you know, she's like, okay, and then she turns it on. <laughs> so she gets credit there. Yeah. The number 17 blues. This one's, you know, seems like it's a, about a, you know, a quick romance, maybe. Number 17, that almost, that got on that album at the last minute. It was like brand new, and um, I wasn't quite sure what to make of it. And um, I was at a friend's apartment, and I played it, and <laughs> looked up, and one of a, our, my friends, my friend's friend, actually was like in tears. I go, "Whoa, no kidding, what's <laughs> going on?" Uh, I guess it really, she really related to it. But um, uh, what Jimmy says, oh my gosh, <laughs> there's a lot between the lines in that one. There's like more than I will ever admit to uh, between the lines in that one. But um, a quick, yeah, I guess. It starts out who the person it's referring to. They're, these are all true stories. I mean, what what happened to me is 
on this trip in Europe where I really was doing a lot of street performing and found my voice, essentially. The other thing that happened in the Greek islands there, I was um, discovered Jack Kerouac, essentially. Mm-hmm. And um, and what I my takeaway from reading Kerouac um, was that I would all my songs would be true. Or they'd all be based in, you know, I wouldn't be making stuff up. They'd all be stuff that happened. Maybe not exactly in that sequence of, or, you know, I'd combine things, but it's all something that happened. Anyway, so the number 17 blues, that's all real people. And the person that referred to in the beginning of that one is the person who's being talked about in the number 14 blues. It's a, it's a con- kind of continuation of that. Uh, blues for the Chosen Few. Uh, this one seems like, uh, you know, a bit of that, I don't know, maybe some Bob Dylan-style surrealism going on in the lyrics. Well, how do you figure? Uh, just the stepping in guacamole and, <laughs> and things like well, that. Well, that happened. I stepped in the guacamole and I put cake in my friend's hair. I, like, <laughs> I guess that's kind of surreal. I mean, it's true. It's like her party is like these her friends. Like I went favored. Like it's just it's exactly as the song describes it. Um, it was, <laughs> the the person who that is is a is the person who took the photo for the cover of the album. Actually, it's. Um, Alana and and I, I would Alana lived around the corner from me and we'd had these it was kind of like um, a, a, a sort of micro salon at a lot of the times we'd end up at her place after ABC No Rio the and consist, it became a sort of gang of four consistently it was me her friend Lizzie John S Hall maybe a gang of five and and me that was the four but there was also um, someone who became an author and whose books became uh, movies used to be there too. And so, yeah, late nights on the, on the candlelight floor, just sitting around, you know, getting ready for greatness or something. <laughs> okay, uh, the ten ten blues. You, now, you, you talked about you know bluegrass and earlier on playing jazz. Like your guitar playing is, you're not playing E G F C. You know, I'm not sure That's what true. exactly you're doing. I'm a guitar player, and I. I'm not. I'm not sure what chord, what chords you're playing in some of these songs. But yeah, they're they're voicings. It's true that, that you know earlier mentioned jazz phase that I went through. Well, you know, actually, what was extremely formative before that was in high school. Uh, my high school, they had this uh, course, uh, a music theory course, that I was uh, had the option of taking in like maybe my last year of high school, and I and I took that, and that. Because I've never really had formal music training, although I I did get guitar lessons, for say through Brooklyn guitar lessons that taught me how to read music very 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 slowly. But so then I had got a grasp for the technical side of music a bit through that. But then this music theory course taught me you know the mechanics of music, so that gave me the tools with which to figure things out throughout to this day. And I'm very grateful for that. And then my jazz phase. Uh, expanded on that a bit so I have these voices in my chords but probably more instrumental really is was my street performing the guitar was almost never would play in tune and I found that it would sound more in tune or less out of tune if I played no thirds chords power chords and stuff like that and so what you hear in the 10 10 10 blues is uh, these voicings um, like my my 
by G chord, I just play two fingers, and I'm playing all that stuff, all the notes, and I'm not playing all the notes in the C chord, and that's just like drones. And I was uh, going to say, yeah, it almost creates a drone quality. So many of my songs are based on the same two chords. Um, basically, uh, like let's look at two in a minute. Obviously, it's the Chilean train blues. It's two chords. It's like capoed up, but it's G and F, so it's going to that that seven. In, 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 the, in the key and, and, and the number 14 blues is exactly the same two chords only up in the fifth fret G and F da 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 you know mm-hmm. and the 10 10 blues is built on that too um, and actually even number 17 blues is I shouldn't be giving this away now people can be saying all these songs sound the same or if they're going to notice that they all sound <laughs> the same but the 10 10 blues they yeah, have a cross country trip um, that, was that the last time he tried cross country maybe I don't know Obviously, a sort of growing feelings for a person who I came back home to, and the room ten ten is it's a room actually mm. at N- uh, NYU dorm overlooking uh, Washington Square Park. That's why it's, uh, the trees sure look different at night from way up here. Uh, and then the next one is it is it the Sicilian Train Blues? Sicilia. Yes, yeah, Sicilia. So yeah, what is that? That's a that's a well from the country. It's Sicily. Oh, okay. In Italy. Yeah. That, well, that's what I thought. I, in fact, yeah. I just watched the movie because Sicilia <laughs> just now uh, this, this evening, uh, uh, coincidentally. Okay. Yeah, it's um, the pronunciation in the song threw me a little bit. I I don't think I've ever heard it pronounced that way. So. Well, that's how I pronounced it when I was in Sicily. So that's where I got that from. Okay. I had been in the Greek islands and street performing and hanging out the Greek discos and stuff and. Um, having all sorts of adventures and, and uh, substantial romance and that kind of thing. And so I'm sitting on a train kind of remembering that. And um, and the rhythm of the song is the rhythm of the train. It's I'm sitting in the train making up the song, and I go, I'm trying to make up something very simple that when I perform, do my street performing uh, for people who don't necessarily speak English, you know, in the various cities of Europe, that they would enjoy it. And then Sicilia, what a great hook. And um, the lyrics are super simple because I'm trying to, you know, make it accessible. And just made the song up sitting there riding on the train, thinking of this um, person who I still remember to, to this day as being a substantial human being, which is awesome. She was just really cool. You mentioned touring a few times and... It sounds like you know you were you were doing some before this came out, and then after this came out, you just totally went for it. Yeah, the touring before the album came out was hitchhiking and busking, street performing. I'm not really playing in clubs, although in New York I was playing in, indoors. <laughs> um, and then after the album, the SSC had a booking agency. Uh, Chuck Kowski, uh, yeah, Global Booking global booking and so they got me around the country on my first tour and i kept, just kept track of all those con- on the first two or three tours and uh you know during the course of that album you could say and that got me started playing indoors around the country mm-hmm. and i kept that going for until around 2001 or so oh okay now what kind of venues are you playing and like are you open you know are you playing with rock bands and stuff too and, and punk bands or are you predominantly playing you know Coffee houses. Oh, that was that was the that was the aim. And in fact, we kind of that's what happened and started in New York for me. It's like certain people get, uh, set examples of 
no, we're not going to play in a folk club. We're not going to play where we're expected to. We're not against doing that. But uh, like Cindy Lee Berryhill was uh, a good uh, was good at that. She played at the Pyramid Club, and I go, oh, Pyramid Club, which is like, I don't well, it's, it's a really awesome place in East Village. I think it's might even still be there. But so, and I ended up playing in New York. I play, you know we play these dance clubs during performance nights or whatever. They'd, there was one night I played at Danceteria, uh, and you play your set would be short, It'd be two, three songs, whatever. It's just almost it was more like a performance as opposed to playing music. Um, and so I was uh, playing at Danceteria one night, and Karen Finley performed. I'm not sure you should look her up. And the Beastie Boys played that night too, and they're but not as the Beastie Boys as their blues band they used to have. Oh. It was just anything goes kind of events uh, at the Palladium, and we're playing there and playing at the Pyramid and all these different places, and then playing you know playing at CBGBs. And the thing is that you know we tended to be loud and interesting to people, and so there'd be a band, and then there'd be me or one of us and another band, that kind of thing. So and when I went on tour, it was the same thing. I try, I would try to play small rock clubs and just have them consider me a band. And that helped that SST got me around the country because then, you know, the general more they didn't have they they had bands that I could uh, play shows with, and and the club the clubs would book me right in, in that way. Uh, yeah, I can then, see you playing with like Firehose or the Meat Puppets or a lot of those yeah. SST bands. Would you know uh, Brian Ritchie? Who produced Kirk's album? Yeah. Um, and well, the thing is, eventually, and plus, I used to do live sound, so I had a pretty good grasp on stuff like that. And I would bring this this uh, a big equalizer with me and a preamp, and I would run to that rig, and it would just I'd crank the low end. So, mm. so you would just mix your do your own mix on stage, basically. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, this would crank up my the my guitar uh, sound enormously so uh, for sound check I'd, I'd take my rig out in the pit and i'd crank up the low super low end and then on stage uh you know i'd sing and the, the sound person would mix me but i just was, right. had this mammoth sound that was just really gratifying and make me seem more or less out of place playing between you know full bands Sonic Youth is eventually a big influence on me, too, so I'd like to have that wash of sound. Well, we'll send everyone over to your Bandcamp page where they can hear, I can't remember what you call it, but the uh, alternate version of this record and some of your later stuff. They have the Make Under. Yeah, right, the Make Under, yeah. Um, any new music, Roger, that you might be... What's what's your status right now? Are you, are you still performing? Yeah, well, COVID, right before COVID, I was... I was getting ready to go back out and start playing a bunch of shows again. I mean, I'm always playing, mm-hmm. uh, just not necessarily booking shows. Uh, so hopefully, I'll get to that. And I hang out with the bluegrass uh, in the bluegrass scene in New York and do jam on that kind of music. Okay. Pretty pretty regularly, and I have a bunch of new songs that uh, if I could get myself to record them, that I I'll get up on Bandcamp. You know. Well, you're in the broom closet right now, and the four yeah. track is right across the room. So. <laughs> Well, I have a, a MacBook now I can use. So, <laughs> right on, Roger. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I really appreciate it. Well, yeah, thanks, uh, and for having me, and thanks for being so uh, patient. Yeah, <laughs> and, and, and interested in all these these great SST groups. All right, awesome. So great to hear from Roger. 
great perspective on the scene and also all these tracks that we're going to get into. I definitely uh, loved hearing about, you know, the purpose behind anti-folk and about how it was originally a, a reaction, perhaps, you know, like an outsider movement, out, the outsiders of the outsiders movement almost, you know, yeah. and how it eventually kind of took on a bit of a, a tongue in cheek type of, you know, vibe, I guess, locally. But as you mentioned um, in the history lesson and even before, it's turned into something way bigger than that. That's still going strong. Yeah. Yeah. I like that he got his first taste of street performing in Montreal. That totally makes sense. Yeah. Roger may have got his first taste of poutine in Montreal as well. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> as, as one should. Yeah. Yeah. And my favorite part, well, not my favorite part, but I like that he, he mentions the taters. He saw him in New Haven. Yeah. I'm always down for a dictator's reference. Well, that's, I don't know if that is why this record stuck its hooks into me. And when I was reading about anti-folk, I mean, it really brings to bear the fact that there are such similarities between this type of music and the things I like about punk rock. Yeah. About how it's, how it's a reaction, how it's even more underground than the underground how it's, you know, it's got a bit of a protest element to it. But but one of the main things is that it is just pure and full of integrity. This It seems like, you know, Roger couldn't do anything else than, than play and sing just like this because it is so truly him. And that's, I think, part of what connected to me about this record. Yeah, I mean, I'm I like protest singers, right? Like, especially ones that focus on organized labor. I got the impression, and I've never heard the Kurt Kelly record either, but I, I got the impression that he was way deeper into the protest side of things. Mm-hmm, you hear mm-hmm. Roger get referenced as a protest singer a lot, and he's really not. There are there are some, you know, some songs that you could consider protest songs on this record, but I would say predominantly not. But, you know, he's definitely not Billy Bragg or anything like that. No, no, political, maybe not protest. Although I did see some videos online of Roger playing at protests, which I thought was cool. Well, I think live, he could really go off, you know, on a yeah. spiel, I think, yeah. about whatever was, was going on at the time, for sure. Like, he's yeah. he's definitely involved in in uh, progressive politics and, and protests, protest movements and things like that. Yeah, one of the best videos I saw online when getting into this record this week is roger doing the pearly blues at like the 2009 san francisco folk fest or whatever yeah just an amazing rendition of one of the best songs on this record and roger's on stage barefoot but also like singing the the lyrics and also talking to the crowd at the same time you know yeah uh just a great vibe well i think the thing about roger is I'm not sure if he mentioned this in the interview or if he told me afterwards, or maybe I even saw him mention this in, in one of the articles, but he talks a lot about being uh, influenced by Jack Kerouac. And yeah. the main influence I think he took away, other than the prose, is uh, he said, I, I've heard him say that what inspired him was the way all of Jack Kerouac's writing was about real life. And I think mm-hmm. that's what 
Roger was attempting to do was write about his life. So you'll hear a lot of, you know, a lot of these, a lot of these are just straight up love songs to me. But, mm-hmm. you know, there is some protest elements, but I bet you live, I mean, he, a lot of folk standards like Phil Ox or whatever, or Woody Guthrie or Joe Hill, they're protest songs. So, and I, I guarantee you he knows all of them, right? Or Joe Strummer, by the way. Joe Strummer, for sure. Do you want to get into these tracks? Yeah. History Lesson, Part 2. Hey, before we get into these tracks, we've actually got a Spaceman spiel that I can lay on you out of the SST catalog for this record. Okay, go. All right. Roger Manning. One cat who's truly been and played everywhere. Lofty mountain peaks, exotic foreign lands, and the tiled concert halls of New York's subway system. Roger Manning's earthy combination of acoustic guitar and voice are at last captured raw and untamed. Twelve acoustic tunes, LP, cassette, and CD. All right. And I'll just say before we get into these, Ryan, I really don't focus on lyrics when I listen to music. Hard not to with this one, hey? It's really all I could think of to talk about. Yeah. Well, you know, the back of the... Uh, the jacket on the CD anyways, how it says, you know, there's not a lot of space in these songs. They are packed with amazing lyrics. Yeah. It's poetry. Yeah. I guess that's where I struggled is trying to figure out what Roger was singing about sometimes. Mm. And so even though he sent me some stuff after the interview and we went through these tracks, sometimes I'm I'm still not a hundred percent clear on, on what Roger's singing about. That's okay though. Okay. Track one, side one, Ryan, the number 14 blues. Mm-hmm. Comes out rockin'. Steve Danzinger on drums. A few notes Roger sent on the lyrics. I want blue lips like the guy on the video screen. The guy on the video screen is Adam Ant. Oh, no way. Yeah. I was thinking like Max Headroom or something like that. <laughs> I, I had like, yeah, I was thinking who was on TV in the 80s with blue lips, but Adam Ant, of course, yes. Yeah. The title, I assume, comes from the lyric, 14 is a lucky number, 1 and 4 make 5. Mm-hmm. 5 makes me want to go the distance, keep the beat, and survive. Yeah. It's got kind of a, like a train chugga-chugga type of rhythm for me that I dug. Yeah. Roger also told me the lyric, Sad Bird Chirping Church Steeple Dawn, was mimicking Kerouac's style of using verbs as adjectives. There's, this one has the lyric, last night, me and Kirk Kelly, we raved all night long. Uh, and then Roger also shouts, go man, go, which was a rallying cry of the scene of sorts. And also the title of Kirk's album. Mm-hmm. Track two, the pearly blues. Here's some more lyrical insight from Roger. Surrounded by a million bricks that lay pointing in every direction across the continent is a variation on a Thomas Wolfe line from Of Time and the River. The bass was the train, the sax played the scenery, is a Coltrane reference. The world is mine because I'm poor, said the on-the-road alcoholic. That's another Kerouac reference, on the road being his, his famous book about hitchhiking around America. The microphone drops to the floor face down in beer is a reference to uh, an event uh, with Billy Syndrome, <laughs> which makes sense if you, you read up on Billy Syndrome a little bit. Uh, this song also references Michelle Schacht, another artist from the scene who went on to, to have a long acclaimed career. Combat Rock was blasting. 
is a, is a line from this. Oh, yeah. And it had to be a folk song because everybody knew the words. Yeah. And then, as Roger mentions in the interview, this is not a folk song, is a pill reference. Yeah, nice. Yeah. Pretty sweet to have an anti-folk song name check the Clash and Pill at once. Yeah. Well, that's the thing about this scene, you know, as even though, you know, it's uh, it's really folky. I mean, Roger's personal in- influences were all over the map. Like, Missing mm-hmm. Foundation is not a folk band. They're no. the furthest thing from it, you know? Yeah. Okay, track three, The Lefty Rhetoric Blues. Here's a lyric. While listen to the lefties talking on the radio, they're putting down the government. What do you know? Roger mentions a review from the Dallas Observer in 1989 by Clay McNear in the interview. When I asked him about this song, here's what Clay said in that uh, article. Say a musician was granted just one song a career, a two and a half minute crack and lay, at laying it all on the line. And after that, poof, the dude had to become a mechanic or something and the song was left to stand nakedly on its own merits. If that was the way of the world, Roger Manning would have been back on the chain gang by now. This beat poet and neo-traditionalist, fragmented, postmodern, subterranean, homesick, folk grass, thrash, flat picker from New York's East Village pretty much sums it all up eloquently, passionately, confessionally with the song The Lefty Rhetoric Blues. Mm-hmm. Then he quotes a lyric. Lefty folk singer rhetoric has such a boring ring. They make me sick, oversimplifying everything. But then on the other hand, they were right about Vietnam. True. Satire, spoof, autobiography, fable, storm warning. Manning's song hits all the high notes in the shortest time imaginable, perfectly etching the fate of movement and the fury of a backlash with 86 spare words. This gentle scream in the dark, layered over the barrelhouse boom of his churning acoustic guitar, attests to the absolute power of the simple marriage of words to music. People have written sociological treatises on the subject of the lefty rhetoric blues, but Manning gives us something new and momentous in his minimalist 2 minutes 19 seconds. Mm -hmm. It's actually a pretty topical subject matter for the music today even. And I I feel like Roger could write a song like this called the righty rhetoric blues too, right? It's all about these extremes but they were right about vietnam it's like everyone's maybe a little bit right uh, and uh, and a lot wrong i don't know yeah here's another note from roger the lefties talking on the radio are the pacific network roger said i eventually volunteered volunteered and even sat on their board track four the hitchhikers blues roger said i would joke that the clash and billy bragg wrote this one a few people believed it for a minute In Clay McNear's review, he singles out a lyric from this song, Proud to be an American, clinging to the suburban way, the I-can't-be-bothered state who cares about others when you've got it made. He calls it a head-on collision of anger and apathy. The result is a ragged but richly realized panorama of ourselves and our times from an artist who views the world with special eyes. Track 5, The West Valley Blues. I came from a town in Erie County. Across the Cataractus Creek is West Valley. This is a song about a nuclear fuel plant in Roger's hometown. Roger's dad was a photographer, and as it says in the song, he took pictures of secret nuclear tools. He talks, you know, in this song about low-level waste getting into the water. Mm -hmm. 
the lyric, my father, he died of a cancer rare, as probably will others who lived and worked around there. Lots of lyrics in this track. The next one, Strange Little Blues. Here's another one with Steve on drums. You can hear the bluegrass influence Roger mentions in the interview, in the rhythm he's playing on guitar. This one also has the line, Go Man Go is what Cindy Lee Berryhill's guitar says. Uh, Roger calls this a sing-along in the interview, probably the the whoa-whoa part that he does, kind of the chorus. Flipping it over, we've got the Airport Blues. This, this is a full band, one of the two um, that were recorded at NYU Studios. Mm-hmm. Or, a stu- sorry, a studio at NYU. This one's super catchy. Great chorus. Love me, kiss me, leave me, miss me. It's got some great lines in it, like, I want to find out the hard way what mon- that money isn't everything. And I, I know love when I see it. I get scared when I feel it. It's also got Jason Goodrow on bass. Roger mentions Jason's dad was Gary Goodrow. He was in tons of movies. Uh, he plays a heroin-addicted jazz musician in The Connection. He was in Escape from Alcatraz, Evasion of the Body Snatchers, Dirty Dancing. Tons of movies. The next track, The Number 16 Blues. This one has the song, I Gotta Go Down to Sophie's and Go Man Go. Sophie's Bar is, was a, is, I think it's still there, is uh, in the East Village. That was the anti-folk headquarters where the fort was located for a few years. This is the one that was recorded by Brenda Kahn. Live. Live. There is a short video for this song created by Dave Fleischer shot in the New York City uh, subway and the fort at Sophie's and the Williamsburg Bridge. Yeah, this is the one with the line, I ain't no poet. Yeah. And after the number 16 blues, we've got the number 17 blues. Roger said in the interview, this was brand new at the time. Mm-hmm. I like the picking style on this one. It's a bit different than the fast strumming style Roger does. Uh, I like the lyric on here. I'd like to give everyone a little piece of my heart, but I guess these songs are just going to have to do. The next one's a highlight for me, Blues for the Chosen Few. This is another one with drums. Roger says, this one was written about the person who designed the cover, and that's Patricia Lai. She's a Brooklyn-based designer who was just getting started, I assume, around this time. She worked for a bunch of labels, Polygram, uh, and was creative director for Verve Records from 96 through 1999. She did the White Trash comp cover, the Kirk Kelly design. Uh, and her credits are just unbelievable. Dark Angel, Sick of It All, Joe Satriani, Bon Jovi, Exodus, Thelonious Monster. Tons of jazz artists for the Verve label. It's pretty crazy, uh, her career. This song also contains the line... Now we are a gang of four sitting on the candlelight floor, which was Mm -hmm. a group that hung out at Patricia's apartment. The fourth member, uh, whose name was escaping Roger during the interview, is author Blake Nelson, who's written a bunch of novels, but also a few that have been made into movies, like Girl and Paranoid Park. Track five, the 1010 Blues. 1010 is the room number at a dorm in NYU, Roger mentions in the interview. Roger also told me that uh, they tend to sing in a tenor range, Roger does, which was initially motivated by bluegrass music and the need to project while busking. Definitely, Roger's voice is 
grabs you right off the bat. It's not what you expect. No, it's good though. And then lastly, we've got the Sicilian Train Blues. Mm-hmm. Another full band track with Jason Goodrow on bass, recorded at the studio at NYU. This song definitely has that chugging train vibe, which all good folk singers should probably have. <laughs> well, I was thinking that the first and the last track on this record have got that vibe for sure. Yeah. Roger told me that music played in dance clubs, like EDM music, has been a key influence. Uh, he says, Roger says that became more evident on later albums. The beat riff on this one is based on the feel of Bowie's Let's Dance, which was popular at the disco on the Greek island where the events Mm. being remembered in the song take place. So this one in Airport Blues were produced by John Gurren, assisted by Veronica Toole. John has just an insanely impressive career. He teaches full-time at NYU, teaching sound design, among other programs. He's an actor. He's worked with many famous directors like Martin Scorsese, Julian Temple, Alex Cox, Sean Penn. Uh, He's worked as a recording engineer for music and film projects with David Bowie, Sonic Youth, Frank Black, Pill, Jeff Buckley, Lou Reed, Patti Smith, David Byrne. And he's also a founding member of Men Without Hats. Yeah. (laughs) Safety dance, right? Safety dance. Well, there's another French-Canadian connection, isn't there? Yeah. There you go. That's the record, man. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. What about these liner notes on the back? Yeah, hit me with some liners. Written by Tom Goodkind, another musician from the anti-folk scene who played in the group The Washington Squares. Mm-hmm. Yeah, here's what Tom said. Dig this one-man band with his 14 to 17 blues and his subway style. The one-man band played to anyone who cared as he busked all over Europe and North America. His craft has been perfected as watched and listened to him in village clubs and in the square. Very, very few have been able to reinvent and represent the spirit of the great American troubadour in so compelling a way. To be enthralled by the music of Roger Manning could be considered a curious thing in this age of right-wing computer, corporate pop, So be a curiosity. Blast this stuff loud. Let the neighbors hear and feel all that's around you. Go, man, go. Tom Goodkind, April 1988, the Washington Squares, Greenwich Village. The cover photo, Ryan, was taken by Alana Storis. Roger dedicates the record to my father, who never heard these songs, and to the writers of the NYC MTA, who heard it first. Mm Mm-hmm. It's got all the lyrics typed out on a typewriter, just all together. Almost as difficult to read as the the lyrics on Raging Full On. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> I knew. It does look like uh, New Alliance Records uh, like typesetting. That's what it looks like. Yeah. And it's good. Here's from an article from 1991 in a North Carolina newspaper called The Chronicle, based out of Duke University by Jeff Jackson. Who is Roger Manning? Roger Manning is one of music's greatest unknown treasures, someone who in several years will probably be among its most important practitioners. Roger released one album in 1988, which was one of the finest debuts of the past decade and easily among the best of that year. Roger Manning performs accompanied only by guitar, 
but instead of conforming to the expectations of folk or acoustic music, Roger expands the vocabulary of both terms. Roger is one of the most interesting and intelligent performers around. Mm. And, and Roger suggests in this interview he doesn't like the sound quality. On this record? Yeah, or, his, mm. or, or the performance, for that matter. I don't know. It grabbed me pretty darn quick. It sounds good. Yeah. But I understand. We've heard that so many times from people being critical about how they sound themselves, you know? I totally get that. Yeah. As far as what Roger's up to now, they're heavily involved in a campaign against privatization and overdevelopment of Governor's Island, which is a public space in New York City Harbor. Roger says that takes up a lot of their time. GovIslandCoalition.org you can go to sign the petition, uh, donate to the legal fund, or learn more. There's also an activist marching band called Rude Mechanical Orchestra that Roger plays clarinet with. It's a 30-piece orchestra, uh, a radical marching band and dance troupe that plays protests, demonstrations, direct actions, picket lines, etc. Sounds super fun. Yeah. Maybe real quick, we should just mention, he, he mentioned it during his interview on the uh, the guitar, how he had scratched all the places, right. but on on the album cover, Roger's got a knife in his hand. This is how badass it looks, and the it shows the back of the guitar where he had scratched in the places where Roger's been. There's Avignon, Annecy, Genève, Venice, San Francisco, Portland, Seattle, Chicago, and it looks road worn, and uh it's probably earned every mile and the guitar sounds like it on this record. Yeah. It also is emblazoned with a gigantic SST sticker on it. Yeah. When you, when you see, see him play live, which is pretty cool. Yeah. All right. Ballot result. Ballot result. I'm curious to hear what your picks were, were Ryan. Well, I definitely like the pearly blues. It's a real standout, but I loved the 14 blues I also liked uh, the Hitchhiker, Hitchhiker's Blues, the Lefty Rhetoric Blues, and Blues for the Chosen Few. I liked with uh, the drums there again. Uh, you know, I don't know. They're all pretty darn good. It's not like there's a bad song on the record. It's a great, solid record as a package, too. Yeah. You know, sometimes we've had some records where it's like, ah, they could have left off that track. There's no song to leave off this record. They're all good. Those would be my faves, though. Yeah, I picked the number 14 blues, the pearly blues, the lefty rhetoric blues, the airport blues, blues for the chosen few, and mm. the Sicilian blues. That's a lot of overlap Yeah, between you and I, so that definitely some standouts. Let's do blues for the chosen few. Oh, really? A deep cut? Yeah. Okay, I'm in. Okay. It's good that, you know, if anyone's going to hear Roger Manning just randomly my guess is they're probably going to hear the pearly blues. Yeah, probably. So, so good for them to hear a deep cut on our comp tape. Yeah. What a interesting record to come out on SST. Like we haven't heard anything like this. No, it is completely on its own. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, good on SST for putting this out. It's pretty cool that they got. You know, one of the stars of this scene. Yeah. One, of, one of the biggest names, for sure. Two of the biggest names, Roger mm -hmm. and Kirk, on the label. It would have been, you know, really helped them, I think, with that New York connection, too. Yeah. Like, they were really connected to New, to New York with 
between Elliot and and all of his projects and Sonic Youth. It didn't SST have a New York office right about now too, late eighties? I'm pretty sure. Yeah, they may have. Yeah. So I mean I could see them really trying to establish themselves further by getting a local star from the from the anti-folk scene. You definitely were not going to get signed to S. Well, I don't want to sound too absolute, but I'm thinking if you're part of a folk scene and you're going to get signed to SST, it's not going to be the folky scene. Yeah. It's going to be the anti-folk scene, right? For sure. Yeah. Hey, Ryan, thanks to Roger for all the help on this episode. Absolutely. Yeah. What's next week? Next week, Brant, we haven't had these guys on for a while, but definitely one of our faves. It's SST 204, the Universal Congress of This is Mechalodics. Awesome, can't wait. Hey everyone, thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, all at Mojack Pod. We post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is mojackpod.com. Please check it out for some exclusive content. If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support, and we hope to see you next week.